In this episode, we interview Hamza Khan. Hamza is a multi-award winning marketer, best-selling author, and global keynote speaker whose TEDx talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed over a million times. He is a top-ranked university educator, serial entrepreneur, and respected thought leader whose insights have been featured by notable media outlets such as Vice, Business Insider, and The Globe and Mail. He also empowers youth and early talents through his work as Managing Director of Student Life Network, Canada's largest and most comprehensive education resource platform, which reaches over 2.7 million students. From TEDx stages and international conferences to MBA classrooms and Fortune 500 boardrooms, Hamza is invited regularly to deliver keynotes and workshops around the world. His clients have included some of the world's most dynamic companies and organizations, including PepsiCo, LinkedIn, Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Trivago, and over 100 colleges and universities. If you want to learn more about Hamza, you can look at his website, hamzakhan.ca. In this episode, we talk about his leadership experiences, challenging the status quo, as well as his take on burnout being a leadership issue. We hope you enjoy this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. We're so happy to welcome Hamza Khan to the show. Hamza, welcome to the show. Thank you guys. Really, really honored to be here. So when Peter and I were doing some research on your background, we came across Drew Dudley's name. And we're, we actually have the pleasure of interviewing him in a few weeks. Funny small world. So we wanted to ask you, how did you guys know each other? Yo, wow. What a small world. My goodness. Drew Dudley is the homie. Drew Dudley <laughs> is not only a friend and a mentor, but uh, the man that I credit with single-handedly changing my life. And I say that because I think back to the, the turning point truly for when things really picked back up and set me down the path that I'm on right now. I was a very bad student. I'm just going to put that out there. Let's get that on the record. Um, first, second, third year university, the, the mark steadily slid from B plus to B minus to B to C plus, C minus, and I started failing courses in my third year. And the reason why is because there was a fundamental disassociation between the premise upon which I entered post-secondary and what my passions were. I felt like I just had to follow through with the blueprint that had been laid out before me by guidance counselors, by my parents, by um, you know, society at large. I felt like I had to sort of fall into the career trinity, at least in the South Asian immigrant culture of doctor, lawyer, engineer. And any other job outside of that was not honorable, was not befitting of the lifestyle that uh, you know, people outside of my you know, people that were in me had envisioned for myself. And so there I was, this terrible student showing up to class late, leaving class early and uh, on the verge of dropping out. I was falling through the, the cracks, essentially. What changed for me is I stumbled into a leadership development workshop at the University of Toronto Scarborough that Drew Dudley was hosting. And he said the words that changed my life. He said that you don't just go to post-secondary, you don't go to college or university just to get a job, just to get a degree. You go there to develop yourself 
holistically. It's about personal, professional, and academic development. There's stuff that happens inside of the classroom, and that's important, but there's stuff that happens outside of the classroom that is arguably more important, just like you guys are doing right now with this podcast, Leading the Rounds. This is not counting towards any academic credits for you, and if it is, pretty cool, but I'm, I reckon that it isn't. But I imagine it's, that the conversations not. that you're having through this are so rich, right, Peter? So it's not, it's not. And, and that, you know, that activated the light bulb in my head. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been going about this wrong. Like, yeah, I'm going to walk off that convocation stage with the exact same degree, regardless of my marks as everyone else. How do I set myself apart? How do I self-actualize? How do I build up the network and the repertoire of skills? How do I invest in that toolbox of technical and soft skills? Well, that's what Drew Dudley planted the seed in my head on in my head and early on. And uh, from that point onwards, man, it has just been a wild ride of, of um, you know, uh, investing in myself, building my networks, experimenting, stepping outside of my comfort zone and growing personally, professionally and academically. And so uh, long story short, Drew Dudley helped me course correct at a time in my life where the story could have ended very differently. So maybe you can get into this a little bit more, but you're talking about um, Drew Dudley saying that, you know, college is not about what happens only in the classroom, but also what happens on the outside of the classroom. Now, what, what were you doing outside of the classroom during your time that then made you the young leader that you are today? That's a great question, man. So I, w- I will, I also have to preface it by saying this, right? I imagine that a lot of the people that are listening to leading the rounds are in the same programs. And so this is not a call to suddenly neglect your studies and neglect your academics and throw in the towel and just fail out of fail out of school, right? There are certain jobs like the ones that you're in right now that require there to be an academic pedigree that is indicative of the competence necessary to perform a job at an elite level. So in other words, get A pluses if you can, guys. Like work your asses off, make sure you're doing well in school. But don't do what I did, and that is essentially for three years, do nothing outside of the classroom. Like, don't just show up to class. Don't just come to school and then leave and then do nothing and just play video games all day. Um, now, there's a time and place to do that when it comes to self-care. But what I had to do was quickly realize that if I, were to, if I was to supplement my academic experience with relevant outside of the classroom experience, that I would have to find internships. I would have to meet people, set up informational interviews. I would have to travel. I would have to work. You know, basically say yes to everything until I absolutely couldn't and treat my career as an iterative process. And what do I mean by that? every subsequent experience that you take on should provide more happiness than the previous one, more joy than the previous one, and less despair, less sadness and difficulty than the previous one. And in this way, every subsequent iteration that you make, excuse me, in whatever endeavor you're pursuing um, will get you closer to what I call, uh, or not what I call, actually the model describes as the Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, which is a reason for being translated in Japanese. And that's the center of four overlapping circles. If you imagine a Venn diagram of four overlapping circles, what you love, what you're passionate about, sorry, what you love, what you're good at, what you can get paid for and what the world needs. And I think that everybody listening to this podcast, they owe it to themselves to answer those four questions. What do you love? What can you get paid for? What does the world need? And what are you good at? And within the quadrangulation of those, of those overlapping circles is the thing you're meant to do for the rest of your life. So I went balls to the wall, guys. I mean, I joined every club that I could join. I started every organization that I could join. I could start. I interned everywhere that I could. I freelanced. I mean, in that one year that I had, in my fourth year of undergrad, um, I made up for lost time. I didn't have any free time. All of it was spent in the service of 
just experimenting and, and saying, again, saying yes to everything until I absolutely couldn't. So then once you finished your undergrad, I've read some, some work that you've started these companies and, and you're developing as a young leader. Can you talk about navigating being a young leader and maybe leading people that are older than you or that maybe have been in a professional for longer? Yeah, that's a great question, man. So I never thought of myself as a leader and, and people rarely, leaders rarely think of themselves as leaders at the outset of their leadership journeys. But, you know, you have to sort of come back to a, to a new definition of leadership. And this is why I'm really excited that you guys have Drew Dudley coming on because Drew Dudley planted the idea in my head that I'm a leader, whether or not I, I acknowledge that title, that leadership has nothing to do with the title and everything to do with the function it has everything to do with stemming in like uh, leadership as, as, as an exercise, as a way of thinking, being, and doing that's, that begins within the inside and stems outwards. So as a leader, my first experience of managing people came when I was part of the Canadian Armed Forces. And so I was a reservist for a couple of years of my life, and I was put in situations where I had to manage other uh, people in my platoon for small exercises here and there. And I was really bad at it. You know, I just couldn't develop the rapport. I didn't have the know-how, the competence. It was a really messy experience. And I think that was intentional because they wanted to get everybody stepping outside of their comfort zone at the time. And, you know, that was a leadership experience that I would look at and, and put in the category of like definitely an L. I wasn't very effective at it. And so I resisted leadership long after that. I was like, yeah, I'm not a leader. I'm not cut out to be a leader. I don't have the, the, the qualities that I, I typically associated with leadership, which are like confidence, extroversion, outspokenness, wittiness, you know, even there being a sort of physicality and a stature to being a leader. You have all these preconceptions of leadership. Then suddenly, fast forward at the University of Toronto, I'm sitting down with my boss at the time, Alan Grant, who works with Drew Dudley, actually, another great person for the podcast you should get, a man who taught me everything I know about strategy, who said that, uh, hey, you know, if you're going to lead this team that I'm going to put you in charge of, you need to write yourself out of a job. And I was like, what? I just started the job. This is literally day one uh, of the job. What, what are we doing here? He's like, trust me, if you start to write yourself out of a job, you will begin to do the very things that a leader does which is to create processes, systems, dependencies, contingency plans, train other people to take over things and empower other people and lead from behind. And that's when I was like, oh, snap. Oh, yeah, that kind of does sound like what a good leader does. A good leader is not necessarily a player. A good leader is a coach. A good leader is not on the court, not on the field, not on the rink. The, the leader, the coach, if you will, is on the sidelines, coordinating the plays, the orchestrator, conducting the orchestra, the person ensuring that everybody else can shine, be good at what they do. And once that seed was planted in my mind by Alan Grant about writing yourself out of a job, creating systems, and then on the other hand, you had Drew Dudley saying that leadership is really about personal leadership and organizational leadership is a macrocosm of you leading yourself as an individual. That's when my leadership philosophy as Hamza began to be shaped by the two of those philosophies. And, um, you know, what has happened since then is I've approached every subsequent, going back to that iterative approach that I just uh, alluded to a couple, of, a couple of seconds earlier here, every subsequent job that I've taken on has seen me become a better and better and better leader. So I now feel at 33 years of age, managing director of Wyconic and a whole host of other sort of projects, I am the best leader that I've ever been because I now have the experience of looking back at the last 10 years of stumbling through leadership figuring it out in real time and making mistakes and, you know, drawing back from as early as that L that I took in the Canadian armed forces to where I am right now. 
And I'm, I, I, I sincerely believe that I'm not the leader that I am right now. I'm going to look back at 10 years from now and be like, wow, I was such an ineffective leader when I was running Wyconic. <clears throat> so this brings up two questions that we have had, we have for you. Um, the first one that I wanted to ask is based on your experiences in the military and in business where there's this clear hierarchy, just as there is in, in medicine, you know, we're as students, we're nowhere near the level of like attending physicians or faculty. Um, what advice would you give to medical trainees who exist in this field with a clear hierarchy and how they can start to cultivate their leadership capabilities, but also act as young leaders themselves? And then the second question that I wanted to ask is, uh, and maybe you could weave these together, is what would you go back and tell yourself, say five, 10 years ago, like when all this was happening for you? Yeah, I, what an excellent question. And I, I've been meditating on this a lot, especially during the pandemic, where, you know, I, I believe that, you know, in, in, when, when faced with adverse leadership moments, when faced with adversity, leaders don't step up. That's a, that's a notion that we once subscribed to, but the truth is leaders actually stand out. And, you know, the leader that you are in moments of crisis, in moments of adversity, is the best reflection of your true leadership values in your practice because you're stressed and you know you have the amygdala hijack and that that takes brain it takes blood away from your prefrontal cortex a part of your brain that you need for uh, high cognitive capacity thinking creative thinking and puts you in essentially fight flight or freeze freeze mode and so the leader that you are when you're faced with these difficult moments is is the leader that has been trained a leader that has been articulated and honed well in advance of that adverse leadership moment. So maybe I could start answering this question backwards. The advice that I would give myself is this, that trust that the one thing that will not change regardless of whatever context we're in. So you could be in, in a different industry, you could be in a different position in your career, a different time in history, but leadership is always going to start from the inside and work its way outwards, not the other way around. You don't become a good leader because somebody promotes you and gives you the corner office, gives you the title, gives you the money, puts you in charge of a team, right? That doesn't make you a good leader. That is situational. The leader that you are is built and honed well in advance of whatever that leadership moment is. So continue to invest in developing your personal leadership philosophy, articulate your leadership philosophy, articulate your leadership values, and continue to invest in that. And I'm excited again. I can't wait until that Drew Dudley episode drops because he's going to no doubt talk about the day one leadership philosophy, which is about every single day doing something, small, consistent actions that make it more likely that you will become a leader that is whatever, empathetic, charismatic, um, productive, whatever values you describe as your leadership values. So start over there. Then the first part of your question, Peter, and, and, and forgive me if I got it wrong over here, but like how, how is leadership changing? Um, no, how, how did you, like, what, what advice would you give medical trainees as, as young leaders who exist in this system with a clear hierarchy? Oh, and, right, right, right. Sorry. The, the hierarchy question. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is going to sound counterintuitive at first, but you have to believe me over here. The old leadership models are dying. And the pandemic has been a silver lining for that. I believe that the hierarchy, the traditional top-down hierarchy, the one that is reactive, the one in which you have perhaps even toxic leaders up at the top who are avoidant, aggressive, and authoritarian, that model is, is, is breathing its last breath. 
leadership is going through a massive reinvention and this is happening across the board. And I think it is largely driven by the two of you. It's being largely driven by a younger generation that has more access to information, that has more access to options and opportunities than ever before. And you're not going to put up with it. You're not going to put up with a leader that, you know, is, is, um, again, those three things, avoidant, aggressive, and authoritarian, that old paradigm is dying. We're going right now through a great reset in which a leader has to be a servant leader first and foremost. This leader has to be focused on innovation. This leader has to prioritize diversity and not just diversity of individuals and their intersectionalities, but diversity of experience, thought, background, all of that. And last but not least, and perhaps even more important than servant leadership, is a leader has to be empathetic. Now is the time for... For, for compassion, for self-care, for treating humans like humans. And, and that, that is what we respond to. Every other manifestation of leadership is just simply not working. And if it does appear to work right now, it is a very temporary optical illusion. And there's no shortage of examples of companies that on the surface and organizations on the surface, whether in the medical field or outside of the medical field that appear to be effective, but the truth is when you probe a little bit deeper and you ask people how they're really doing under these really oppressive leadership styles, they're telling you that they're considering leaving, they're burning out, they're stressed out. Um, you're just not going to attract top talent. That, the, the, the truth of the matter is you are not going to attract top talent if you are leading an organization with that very top-down, aggressive, avoidant, authoritarian approach. So you know, the advice that I would give succinctly is look around you and know that you have all the options in the world. Yes, there might be a hospital that you want to work at. There might be a clinic. There might be an organization, a not-for-profit that you think is the one that you should work at. But then you talk to people over there and they tell you that they're working 12-hour days. They're working evenings and weekends, that their boss doesn't see them, that they're you know, being stepped all over. Is that really where you want to work? And I think that the world is your oyster, especially now more than ever when this industry your industry has been deemed the most essential industry. I think that you're going to have your pick. You get to decide where you want to go and you get to call the shots in the best way possible. So you brought up a couple moments ago, the idea of burnout, and that's where we want to kind of transition the second half of this interview. And Peter and I have listened to some of your work and heard you say that burnout's not necessarily a personal problem. It's a leadership problem. And so so how can you tie these ideas together of poor leadership, like you mentioned, and the system not being right with leading people to burnout? And then we'll get into some of your ideas in relation to burnout. Okay, so that you, you asked a question that, um, you know, I've had to shelve for a little while because I remember when I first proposed this idea, it caused quite a bit of uproar. But I stumbled on this idea in a really, really interesting way. So I published a book in 2017 called The Burnout Gamble, and it was a book that placed the onus of recovering from burnout on the individual. And so it was a book that prioritized self-care, resilience, productivity, and doing things as Caleb, as Peter, as Hamza that could manage our burnout experiences. And I alluded to the fact that there are there are factors outside of our control, competition, alienation, society, technology, loneliness, the economy, et cetera, um, factors from without that affect our burnout, but largely it's an individual problem. But then two years later, I published that in 2017, at the beginning of, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, I started to look into some stats. I started to look into a couple of different uh, indicators that burnout numbers would have decreased over time. So I looked at the total amount of search results for burnout resources, the amount of burnout 
resources that were published as books, as podcasts, as courses. Um, I looked at the amount of times that self-care and, and sort of the things that I think are f- essential for individuals to recover from burnout are being popularized. So yoga, eating clean, working out, all of these things. And so on the one hand, you saw a rise in burnout and stress awareness, burnout and stress management resources, and this was steadily rising. And so it would logically follow that if those things were on the rise, that their rates of burnout would decline. But not only have they increased, they've actually exponentially increased. So despite the rise in all of these resources for the individuals, what has happened, unfortunately, is rates of burnout have increased. So I had to look the other way. I'm like, what is going on over here? And I arrived at the conclusion very quickly that burnout in its current manifestation is very much a leadership problem. And I'm very hesitant to say that, but every time I try to disprove that, more and more evidence comes out in support of that. And the biggest one was in 2019 when the World Health Organization upgraded the definition of burnout as a result of chronic workplace stress that has been successfully unmanaged. And so I'm tinkering with this idea now that there are some hallmarks of poor leadership that is conducive to burnout. And the first one is, you know, leaders haven't defined what success looks like. And what happens when a leader hasn't defined what success looks like they create, an, they create an environment of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And then you find yourself as an employee in that environment, the goalposts keep on moving, and there's no real feeling of progress or accomplishment. You don't get the feedback. You don't get the dopamine rush of actually completing tasks because even if you've completed something, it's not good enough. And we're finding ourselves now in the situation where people are working day in and day out being like, are we actually moving the organization forward? Are we actually helping in a tangible way? And I think you guys can relate to this as medical professionals. It's like, yeah, you're treating these cases. You're treating these people that you know, are, 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 are being aff- afflicted by COVID-19, looking at that as an example. But despite you saving individual lives, the numbers continue to increase. So what are we really doing here? Like, are, we, are we actually helping at a structural level? Then the second hallmark would be leaders prioritizing outputs over outcomes. And so they focus on these appearance indicators, these very flimsy, almost vanity indicators that you're working. They look at things like the total amount of hours you're putting in. They look at sort of the optics. Do you look busy? Are you responding to emails at all hours of the night? Are you answering your pager whenever we, whenever we paid you? What they should be focusing on, though, are the things that are concretely defined as success in your respective work. And what happens when there's a focus on outputs over outcomes is this leads to micromanagement and overall, I would say, poor decision-making. Then hallmark number three would be leaders practicing theory X style of management over theory Y. And I think this is what brought us together because you discovered the TED Talk uh, that I did in 2015 where I talked about how this new generation is very much all about theory Y. Leaders should assume that we're self-motivated, we're well-intentioned, we're hardworking, but unfortunately, leaders assume the opposite. They assume that we're lazy, disinterested, we lack motivation, and what they do is they encourage attrition. They actually prompt us to burn out. And then, do we have time for two more? If that's cool. So leaders don't invest in professional development. That one's pretty straightforward, right? It's all about transactional. Hey, Peter, hey, Caleb, work for me. Here's a paycheck. You're good, right? Okay, you're good? Awesome. What, you're, what, what you guys are looking for is you're looking for the leadership to invest in you, continue to grow, continue to send me to conferences, get me to speak over there, you know, find out what are some skills that I could develop, provide me with that feedback, take time out of your day to make sure that we're making you more engaged employees. And then the other one is that leaders care disproportionately about the mission. And this is a problem, right? So this actually comes from Jocko Willink, who wrote The Dichotomy of Leadership, uh, 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 
a book that I cannot recommend highly enough. So if you have some room in the show notes, put it in there. And he talks about how a leader has to, d- to balance delivering against the goals of the mission, but also delivering the needs of the people. And if you focus too much in one direction, it creates an imbalance on the other. So if you focus too much on the people, it takes away from the mission. If you focus too much on the mission, it takes away from the people. And unfortunately, what's happening these days, especially in the middle of a situation like this, is leaders are becoming laser focused on the mission, which is get out of the pandemic. And rightfully so, but be, be careful because that's taking the, your eyes away from the people. And if I could throw one more in there, it's leaders creating an unsafe environment and not just a physically unsafe environment, but a a mentally, emotionally unsafe environment. So leaders need to adopt better policies, better practices, and recognize that they might be intentionally or unintentionally contributing to the burnout of their employees. Sorry, guys, that was a lot, but I can't help it. You're you're asking such really rich questions. I mean, it's all all credit to you guys. That was an amazing response. And actually, when I first heard this line from you, it, it prompted me to think because the language of burnout is always so inward facing. It's always, I'm feeling burnt out. I'm working too hard. I'm feeling just drained. I'm feeling unhealthy. So that I think it poses an interesting challenge to the individual to one break out of those, that mindset. Um, but also like, how do you, how as a leader, can you help your, your people shift that internal monologue from inward facing to um, I guess more of like a communal sharing your emotions. That, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm going to provide a little anecdote about this shift in, in accountability and then tell you how uh, personally I've been as a leader um, making that shift internally in my organizations, but also what I think could be done by leaders overall. So I first presented this idea at the top of 2020 at a keynote that I did at an educational institution here in Toronto. And uh, it was a room full of like teams. And so you had the managers of the teams and you had the employees on the teams. And when I presented these hallmarks in much more succinctly, what happened, I've never seen this before. Usually when I finish a keynote, you know, I, I, I get people come up to me afterwards and they ask me questions and they tell me, Hey, Hamza, that was a great talk. I learned a lot. You know, maybe out of a hundred people, I'll get maybe like five or 10 people come up afterwards. That's standard. I'm not even kidding guys. After I pro- proposed these hallmarks of flammable leadership, half the room came up to me afterwards. Like it was another talk that spun off and everybody was saying the same thing. Hamza, I'm so glad you said that. Hamza, I'm so glad that you said this in front of my boss. You put in words what I've been feeling and you're, you validated my experiences. I thought it was just me. To your point, Peter, a lot of them said that up until now, I thought this was a me problem. But now I'm realizing through your, your articulation of the flammable leadership model that this is largely a leadership problem or equally a leadership problem. And then the few leaders that came up to me afterwards, they were split in two camps. One camp was like, hey, Hamza, like that was really uncomfortable to hear, but I needed to hear that. And the other group was like, I kind of wish you didn't say that because it's really put me in an awkward situation. So across the board, guys, I feel like we stumbled on something here. I feel like we stumbled on a conversation that nobody wants to have. And, you know, I I have a buddy over here and I'm actually going to pull up his tweet. He, He posted something today that really got me thinking about this again. So forgive me, let me just pull this up. And I think it's, I think it's worth quoting here. So um, his name is Astawa Alam. Astawa, shout out to Astawa. He's probably going to be one of the people that listens to this podcast. He said that when you Google how to give feedback to employees, there's 773 million results. When you Google how to give feedback to your boss, there's 147 million results. That's five times less. 
what does this tell you about corporate culture? And I believe that the mistake that we have made is we have, and this is why I talked about the great reset quite a bit. That old model is dying because we're having conversations like this. We're making, we're normalizing these experiences. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to in the rounds right now that are like nodding their heads in agreement being like, yeah, man, like, we never talk about this. And so, so first of all, thank you guys for creating the space to talk about this. Now let's talk about solutions. As a leader, you have to be empathetic. I can't stress this enough. This, if there's one leadership value that you should invest in disproportionately, it is empathy. Dive deeper. I mean, engage with your employees, ask better questions, replace superficial small talk with more in-depth, authentic conversations. Like, yeah, you know, it's a really charged time. Everybody's stressed out. We'd much rather talk about you know, what's happening in sports. We'd rather talk about the weather. We'd rather have superficial small talk about, you know, what we saw in the debate last night. But the truth is people want to have a human connection. I want to, I want to be able to talk to you guys and be like, Caleb, like, how are you? But how are you really, you know, tell me about what this has been like for you and not just give us the same old answers, right? Not saying that you did or I did, but we're guilty of this. People ask me, how's the pandemic? I'm like, oh man, you know, it's been okay. It's been ups and downs and we move on quickly. Or it's been like, you know, how are you doing? Hope you're safe and well during this unprecedented time and we just move on very quickly. But people want to talk. People want to forge human connections. I'm sure that if leaders listening to this sat down with their teams one-on-one and said, hey, we're clearing the agenda. We're not going to talk about anything operational. What has this been like for you and your family? What has this been like for your mental health? Are you okay? Are you scared? Are you worried? So first of all, developing those really human connections. Then embark on a listening tour. Don't just do this with your own team, but do this across the organization. Talk to other leaders, talk to customers, talk to stakeholders, talk to senior physicians, talk to patients, talk to anybody in the ecosystem and become a sympathetic ear to them. So listen to your team. Um, You know, there's just so much that I want to get into beyond that, but I think I want to leave that as being the key, the key attribute to build empathy, but the key practice to also bring into the workplace, regardless of what industry, regardless of what position you're in. As a leader, please, now is the time for empathy, more than ever, because uh, the, burnout, the burnout numbers, I've never seen anything like this. In the last five years of speaking about burnout, writing about it, teaching about it, I'm now seeing something unique where yesterday I did a keynote and I, I set a poll out there and I asked people, you know, these are all leaders in a, in a large academic institution over here in Canada. And I asked them, how many of you are burned out? 100% of them are burned out. And I asked them, how many of you have burned out in the last day, week, month, or year? Everyone, 100%. And most of them had burned out this past week, today, or in the past month. I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's, it's truly, we are, we've entered into a new paradigm, guys. This is, this is, not, this is beyond the burnout generation. This is, now, this is now an epidemic unlike anything else. And that's not even my idea. That's the World Health Organization saying that stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century. So we've talked about these, this hierarchy that is set up where leaders, and then you have the people under them. You can take this question from either, either viewpoint, from the leader or from the person who's in, under their leadership. How do we go about having that conversation to remediate or to work towards a better system and less burnout? So how does a person who's working for an organization talk to their boss and say, hey, these things aren't going well? And on the opposite side, as a leader, what would you want somebody in your organization bringing to you? How would you want them to bring to you these things that they're struggling with and that they're having a hard time with that you could possibly come up with solutions for. 
Excellent. Um, there's a couple of case studies that are working in our favor. So you're seeing, you know, if you want to point to two very easy ones, there is um, Airbnb. So Airbnb did an exceptional job, Brian Chesky, of navigating the pandemic. So he had to lay off, I think, 20% of his staff. And you should see the letter that he wrote. It's publicly available. The letter that Brian Chesky wrote to his staff, you know, that, that, is, that is truly a, a, a reinvented leader. That is the model of what we need moving forward, where a leader is saying, I'm sorry, we couldn't make this work. And this is terrible. This is terrible for you, your friends, your family, your livelihoods. Know that I am personally committed to helping you through this transition. You get to keep your laptop. You know, we're going to create a job board just for you and make, see to it that we actively place you. We're going to pay you severance and then some. I mean, you, you, you look at that as an example. That is, that is a glimpse into an organizational culture that is very much driven by the type of leadership that Brian Chesky, the type of leader that Brian Chesky is. And then you look at the Glassdoor, public, public reviews of the company, what it's like to work over there. They're very much in line with that moment that you see, that leadership moment of COVID-19 presented by Brian Chesky. Again, going back to that idea that in the moment of crisis, a leader doesn't step up. They actually fall back to the level of their training values and practices. There's very much a consistency between what employees are saying about what it's like to work at Airbnb and who Brian Chesky is as a leader. So there's that. That's an organization that is working well. But if you're in an organization where, for whatever reason, your leaders are neglecting your health and well-being, where there is an active culture of burnout there, where the leader might even be toxic, there's a whole host of things, and we could have a sort of graduated discussion on this. There are some very clear hallmarks that you are in a toxic work environment, right? If your boss is narcissistic, Machiavellian, psychopathic, run. Get out of there right now. There's nothing that you can do because you're essentially dealing with you know, uh, to use a video game analogy, that's a boss battle right there. And you haven't leveled up enough. You don't have enough armor. You haven't progressed far enough in the quest to beat that boss. Get away from that. That level is impossible to, 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 to beat. Then you might find yourself in, you know, what has been called the, the toxic triangle of the workplace where you have this toxic leader at the top. And then you also have a work environment that has colluders and conformers that are uh, directly or inadvertently supporting that leader. And then you have an environment of instability, lack of governance. There's a fear of perceived fear of an external threat, all of these things. So I would say if you find yourself in a situation where there's either a toxic workplace or a toxic leader, your first consideration should be probably leave. That's, that, that is an organization that is doomed to fail. If history is taught as anything, that organization won't be around for very long. But if you have a leader that is well-intentioned, that is, uh, growth-minded, but that is making mistakes and is neglecting their responsibilities, that is a perfect opportunity for you to speak up. And don't call out the leader. You know, sometimes you have to call the leader, but call them in. And it's a much more permanent way to go about this. You can say, hey, you know, you know let, let's say, you know, Caleb and Peter, I, let, let's say we're in a leadership situation. I'm reporting into both of you guys, matrix management style, and you guys, for whatever reason, you haven't checked in with me in a while. I haven't had a review. We don't have one-on-ones anymore. I'm losing sense of where this company is going. I could just say, hey guys, is it okay if we book a meeting? You know, I'd love to chat with you guys half an hour next week and then I can bring some concerns up to you. And I would say as an employee, bring it up in the context of not only your emotional well-being and physical well-being and mental well-being, but draw the line between productivity as well. And I think that's what's going to help the boss, your leader, to see the, 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 the utility of this. So I would say to you guys, I would be like, hey guys, so I just want to let you know the last couple of months have been rough for me. You know, my mental health hasn't been in a good shape. 
Uh, I've been trying very hard. I do respect and appreciate this company, but I'm starting to feel like, you know, I, I don't know where this is going and I'm starting to feel unseen and unheard in the organization. So don't make it about you guys necessarily, but make it about the behavior. So I can say something like, when you guys repeatedly push off the one-on-ones, it makes me feel like I'm not a priority. When you guys fail to define my workload for me, it makes me feel like I'm just sort of this employee where you just shovel tasks onto. So using those when you make me, I feel statements is going to help to sort of create an air of objectivity in the room, help the leaders see the problem for what it is. And then I would say, go to them with solutions and say, here's what I think we could do to remediate the situation. What do you think? Rather than just going with your problems, be like, hey guys, can we get to a situation where we have biweekly one-on-ones, just half an hour? And if that doesn't work, then what is a way that we could create a more open line of communication? So come to you guys with solutions because in situations like this, where you're dealing with a well-intentioned leader, I always advise assuming ignorance before malevolence. They're not out there to screw you over. They're not trying to hurt you. What, what they are dealing with is they're just dealing with a lot of things right now. I am a leader. I've been guilty of this, man. I want my, I want my team to thrive. I want them to succeed, but I'm not going to lie. There are some weeks like this week where I had to message my team and be like, I'm so sorry. Like I can't do the one-on-ones this week. I know these are super important, but please bear with me. I just have to get through this week and we'll make sure that we tie it up next week. Um, and it has nothing to do with me not seeing them, me not valuing them, me not prioritizing them. It is truly a reflection of me being unable to manage my workload. I'm not busy. I'm just disorganized. So I hope, you know, in that long-winded answer, there was something in there about calling in your leader and recognizing that if they are a leader worth investing in in the first place. So we've been talking a lot about burnout and these very, I think I want to call them infrastructure jobs, like business, medicine, the military. Um, but I'm also wondering, what, is, what does burnout look like in people who work non-infrastructure jobs, like authors, entrepreneurs, freelance consultants, yeah, man, there's, there's, a, there's a great model that illustrates this. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson Law, Y-E-R-K-E-S hyphen D-O-D-S-O-N law. Talks yeah. about the relationship between challenge and difficulty and performance, right? Such that if the level of challenge or difficulty is too low, then your performance is low on a bell curve. And then if it's too high, it's just as low. But in order to unlock peak performance, you know, you have to find that spot right in between comfort and anxiety. And so as an author right now, where your work might not be as stimulating in a consistent basis, you might find yourself going through a lot of lulls and you don't have the infrastructure, like you said, Peter, to keep you sort of on a graduated path to getting things done. You could experience underwhelmed burnout. And I've been there before as an author. I've experienced underwhelmed burnout. I've mostly experienced overwhelmed burnout, but underwhelmed burnout is a real thing. And we have to look at burnout as not just chronic workplace stress that has been unmanaged. That's the occupational definition of burnout but people are experiencing personal burnout right now. And maybe there's better ways to describe this. Maybe it could be social media fatigue, for instance. Maybe it might be just depression and and personal overwhelm for whatever circumstances you're experiencing in your life. But if we're talking about specifically occupational burnout, then yeah, I... You know, be mindful that burnout doesn't always manifest as a result of being overburdened and saddled by performance pressure. There's, there's, there's quite literally a phrase to describe underwhelmed burnout. And then there's the worst case of burnout, which is brownout, where you've been burned out for so long that it actually has depleted your adrenal fatigue. It has depleted your adrenal glands to the point where you can't actually get back to the same level of performance ever again, because you're just, your adrenal glands are shot entirely. And you see this a lot with people who've abused uh, uh, amphetamines. You see this a lot with, um, you know, adrenaline junkies. 
they find themselves in a deficit at all times. And that's a really hard place to get out of. So we want to wrap it up and talk for a minute about resilience. So we're medical students. You know, we don't have, like you mentioned, the ability to leave our organization at this time, or maybe in residency, we don't have the ability to just leave and we have to push through hard things. And that, that brings up a difficult situation where you might feel burnt out. You might be in an organization that makes you feel more burned out, but you have to push through and you have to cultivate a sense of resilience. And I've read some of your work about resilience and I want to give you a minute to, to talk about you know, what you think helps cultivate and build that resilience and what are some things we can do to help, help us be more resilient? Wow. Isn't this the $300 billion question, right? And that is the cost to American businesses every single year because of burnout, $300 billion. And what is that fine line? What is that fine line between working hard and pushing through like, where does that membrane exist? And I've been struggling with that question. I mean, one of the number one questions I get is, hey, Hamza, like, in order to become who you are, didn't you have to burn out? And there are days where I'm like, no, I didn't have to burn out. And there are other days where I'm like, yeah, that was actually part of the journey. This wisdom could have only been acquired in hindsight. So let me start with this. How does burnout happen? Burnout happens when you are continually far outside of your comfort zone, when the likelihood of stressful experiences is high and the impact of those stressful experiences on your life is high. My sister is a nurse here in Toronto and she was telling me some horror stories about doctors quitting on the job. During, during the early days of the pandemic, doctors were just like, fuck this, I'm out, I can't do this anymore, this is ridiculous. Like I'm, I've been sleeping on, on the hospital floor over here. I haven't had a break in the last 32 hours. This is unbelievable. This is not what I signed up for. And I get that. And, and that is not a knock on them. That is, that is purely a situational anomaly that has resulted in a disproportionate amount of stress that has broken them, unfortunately. And I hope that, you know, we need them. I hope they, they return back to the industry. You know, you, I've re I read an op-ed in preparation for this where a few doctors got together and they're like, after this pandemic is done, we're going to leave the practice. And that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. And, and I'm sure that there have been moments where you guys were so stressed beyond belief that you're like looking at each other like, Peter, Caleb, did we get into the right industry? Like, this is, this is ridiculous over here. But I've been, I've been experimenting with this idea that Resilience is productivity sustained over time. And how do you build up your resilience? I mean, you could talk about it in a classroom, you could read a book on it, but the truth is you don't actually cultivate resilience until you've been in a difficult situation. And when you emerge from that difficult situation, a near miss, whatever that looks like, you develop that hardened skin, either quite literally or mentally and emotionally. And going through adversity, experiencing difficult things, actually over time builds up your resilience and builds up your tolerance rather to that thing in, in whole. So let's use a very practical example. Whatever comes next, let's say we enter into a second wave. We're in a second wave here in Toronto. This is not as stressful as the first wave was because we passed through the first wave. It was a sudden brush with adversity and it rocked us all in different ways, but we've had time to sort of callous over our emotions about this such that if next week, um, our, our, our premier of Ontario says, hey guys, we're going to lock down again. People aren't going to be as stressed out about it as they were the first time around because we know that feeling. We've processed it. We've been through it once. And one of my friends, Amanda Barbosa, she says, if, nobody, if nobody's bleeding and if nothing's on fire, it's all good, right? You survived it. If, nothing's ble if nobody's bleeding, if nothing's on fire, you're, you're probably going to make it through. And I think back to that. I'm like, okay, so this is interesting. How do we apply this to our career? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, 
if you've been through it, if you know what it feels like, if you understand the pain, if you understand how to maneuver and deal with it and recover from it, then there's a good chance that if and when you experience something like that again, you'll be able to deal with it much more effectively, much more efficiently. What's that Sugar Ray Leonard quote? Um, you, bleed in the, you bleed in the gym so you don't, sorry, you sweat in the gym so you don't bleed in the ring. Sweat in the gym so you don't bleed in the ring. And I think back to that all the time. I think back to that all the time. To build resilience, what you need to do and this comes back full circle with leadership, prepare well in advance of when that leadership moment will arrive. As a leader, you need to incrementally dial up the difficulty on the thing that you are probably going to do at some point in the future. And you as medical school students, the academic rigor that you're facing, unlike anything else, I can't even relate to it. You know, I'm an art student. I think that we've been you know, comparatively in terms of workload, in terms of stress and duress, you guys are going through a whole different ball game. They are working you, you are studying, you are, you are in, 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 you are, you are in labs, you are in hospitals, you are in clinics. I mean, you are overwhelmed. You guys are being saddled with a level of work that is commensurate to the work that you are going to do in the future. So in order to show up and be the best doctors you can be, you have to pass through this really rigorous, intensive phase of training such that when you are faced with the real thing, in a hospital environment, you just sink back to that level of training very comfortably and easily. And you see this happen in sports all the time. You see like a, a player like LeBron James invest in his body disproportionately on the offseason. $2 million a year, the right trainers, ice baths, nutrition, practice, practice, practice. And when LeBron James shows up on the court, he does what he does. And we're going to see that tonight with game five. Uh, there's a very good chance, even though I'm a Miami fan, I'm pretty I'm, I'm bracing myself emotionally for the fact that lebron james is going to win another ring and you know that that in that in and of itself is a form of resilience like i've built up the tolerance to that heartbreak that my team is not going to win so i hope that in that very long-winded answer the understanding that people get from this is one that is really cap captured succinctly in the wisdom of the, the ancient greeks who talked about this concept hormesis h-o-r-m-e-s-i-s -E this idea that taking small doses of a toxin which in other in, in which in full could could be lethal actually develops your tolerance to those toxins over time this is not a recommendation to go out drinking poison right now but you know understand the concept and the wisdom being illustrated and illuminated through that metaphor it's uh it's a lot like um one of my old mentors used to say proper prior preparation prevents poor performance whoa say that again i gotta write that down <laughs> I love it's, it's that. A, man. It's a great alliteration. It's one of my favorites. And it was it's really one more time. Sure. Proper. Proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Oh man. Can I get your mentor's name? I got to credit. I got to credit your mentor on this. Yeah. His name is Mort Goldberg. He, man, um, he Mort used Gold to be, he used to be the, um, the director of Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins. That is beautiful. Had, had proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. I got to get yeah. that framed and put up somewhere in the house here. I, uh, I had a couple conversations with him. He was, I would say he was a very short lived mentorship, but he was, it's, he's what it was one of those like very, um, he's very insightful because he's already walked the path that I've walked. Um, so he had a lot of, he just like hit me with all his aphorisms. What a banger. I love that. So good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we like to end our, our shows asking our interviewees about their favorite books. So what, what have been your favorite, most influential books that have kind of, guided you throughout your leadership development? Ooh, great, great question. My favorite books that have guided me throughout my leadership development. Um, as of late, there's been two that, 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 that are standout books. One of them is by a guest that is going to be on the podcast very soon. This is Day One by Drew Dudley. 
I will say that, shameless plug. Um, <laughs> there's also by another friend and mentor who I met recently in Australia called Leadership, Regional and Global Perspectives. It is a textbook, but it provides perhaps the most comprehensive understanding of leadership historically and then grounds it in a modern context. And so you read this book and you come away from it with a very nuanced and deep understanding of leadership as a philosophy, as a practice, and you know the sort of why of leadership. And, um, you know, if I had to think about another book that has been instrumental in my leadership understanding, Let My People Go Surfing. That's another one. Let My People Go Surfing. It is by the Patagonia founder. Uh, let me just find the title of this, People Go Surfing. Yvonne Chouinard. Y-V-O-N-C-H-O-U-I-N-A-R-D. Let My People Go Surfing. The Education of a reluctant business person. And I think that book beautifully captures a lot of the philosophies that I shared with y'all earlier today on this conversation about, uh, you know, managing with a theory why approach and assuming the best and really prioritizing the growth, servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy that I think is befitting of a leader poised to take their organization into the future of work, especially if they're going to lead this next generation. Well, Hamza, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Oh, you guys are rock stars. Thank you so much. No, it was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.